Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. Everybody get up. Hey everybody, get up and join me, Shirley Hood, on Mondays for Second Thoughts. We'll use the hour to rethink, reconsider and review our second thoughts on all those topics we don't discuss enough. With music and entertainment, I'll see you Mondays, 1 to 2pm on your deadly radio station, 3CR, 855 am And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Hello, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and I'm joined here with by Marcus. Hello, Marcus, how are you? Yeah, good day, Annie. Yeah, good thanks, and Yeah, good morning to the uh, many, many listeners to Solidarity Breakfast. That's exactly right. And uh, it's dark and it's cold out there. It's been really cold in Melbourne over the last few days, I'll have to say. And even as a cyclist, I'll have to say that uh, it's very difficult to get warm. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Uh, last week, we were going to uh, follow up... Uh, uh, Jacob Gritch about the Julian Assange issue uh, of uh, uh, how he uh, Julian Assange has been basically snaffled up and put into a, a uh, English prison, uh, very similar to uh, well, it's uh, is actually called England's version of uh, Guantanamo Bay. And uh, we missed out on doing that, mainly because Jacob didn't wake up, which is fine. The good, uh, all good people in the cold and the dark quite often don't wake up. But um, I then sought him out and uh, went down to a demonstration on Thursday night, it was, outside the uh, library, uh, State Library in Melbourne here, uh, where uh, supporters of Julian Assange did a fantastic display. I have to say they're very good at displays, Marcus. They um, put up uh, this huge uh, uh, display uh, banner in front of uh, the um, big pompous uh, bronze statue there in the front of uh, State Library and uh, very big with a whole lot of... um, candles, come and light a candle for Julian Assange. And as it got darker, it looked more and more uh, amazing, I'll have to say, with uh, all the people uh, arrayed there demonstrating in support of Julian Assange so that uh, 
I got a chance to talk to someone about it, uh, a young fella who uh, was, you know, below 20. And interestingly enough, uh, he didn't even know who Julian Assange was, which is sort of curious, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah, given the fact he's been how long? Hold up in detention for oh, close to 10 years, I suppose, now. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's also surprising that uh, he's only 48. I thought he was older. But anyway, that's because of uh, the wear and tear of uh, activism in his uh, life. Uh, And in fact, Thursday was his birthday. And that's why the people had gathered in particular to raise awareness of what's going on there. And uh, so uh, let's kick off today, this morning, with uh, what I collected out in front of the State Library. Tell me why it's, why is uh, Julian Assange bringing him home important to you? Because I think an attack on Julian is an attack on journalism and freedom of speech and if we let them to get away with it, I think it could be the sort of fascism in Australia and around the world and I think it's very important for everyone to resist the attack on the freedom of speech, especially considering that, that actually he proved to the world that actually the United States government and many other governments around the world are involved in war crimes, serious breach of human rights everywhere around the world, and we can't let them not only get away with that, but basically proving to anyone that you're not even allowed to leak the atrocities that they're doing around the world. So I think that's very important to resist. Thanks. From 3CR, can you tell me why it's important to be out here today? For Julian Assange? Yeah, we're just raising awareness of um, his incarceration in Belmarsh Prison, um, facing a trumped-up bail charge, and we're hoping to draw attention to the fact that a lot of the media spin on what he's been supposedly up to um, is just absolutely nonsense, and we're hoping to just draw the public's attention to what he's actually in there for. It's been quite interesting that the Twitter account's been removed, stuff like that. What's your reaction to that? I mean, disappointed but not surprised is probably the best way to put it. Um, it's just been incredible the, the amount of gagging on this particular issue by the media. It's been pretty unprecedented. Um, I have heard since that one of them have been reinstalled, just without warning, just it's back on running again. Um, and they were never really given an explanation either. So there's plenty going on behind the scenes, I'd say. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, thanks. Totally. Uh, probably the second one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I know what, one of the things I did want to say was, uh, mm-hmm. now, Julian Assange is actually from here in Melbourne, and I was just wondering if uh, uh, there's been a... a, a a lot of uh, attention around his supposed bad habits as a human being. Uh, has it, uh, in order to diffuse people's interest in the am- amazing things that he actually achieved, um, have you seen any uh, movement towards people understanding what the real issues are here? I think if we're lucky, we might start be able to draw people's attention to the, the bigger issue, but. I would say a lot of the a lot of the smears have worked or else there'd be thousands and thousands of us here tonight, wouldn't there? Because we all believe in what he was doing. It's just these other distractions have put people off putting any support behind the cause. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it's actually a particular gossipy kind of methodology, uh, marketing campaign. And very malicious and um, just pedantic. It just turns into gossip column inches, doesn't it? And not really anything to do with why he's actually in there. Yeah. I mean, it has been pointed out that uh, WikiLeaks has been um, existing for sort of 10 years before uh, the charge, the issues around the um, particular footage that he's been collected for. But that particular footage, uh, the, sh the bombing of people, defenceless people on the ground in Iraq, was actually so shocking that um, it's taken this long for the establishment to actually be able to get enough support to gather him up. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I think, so that, that footage was from 2007 and it came out in 2010, I think. And that year, you would have had a lot of trouble getting anyone to say anything bad against WikiLeaks. Most people were behind it. So it goes to show what sustained smear campaign can do to a person. I mean, this man's a national hero, international hero, and he should be regaled as such. And to, to see friends of mine, ordinarily otherwise pretty woke friends of mine, buying into the nonsense that's being circulated about him is just thoroughly depressing. But it goes to show the, the power of the media machine. They've got intel otherwise intelligent people fooled. And I guess that's why you are standing here mm. with a sign that says, hands <laughs> off a sign. wake up, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. No. The, banners, the banners here are, you can resist and uh, candles as it gets darker, jail the war criminals, free Julian Assange. I'm from 3CR yeah. and I was just wanting to know why is it important for you to be out here tonight? For Julian. Yeah, why? Because he speaks the truth and I think everybody should know the truth. Why we go to war and why anything happens, we need to know just need to know the truth. Sorry. It's quite extraordinary the things that he was able to do, really, yes, and yes. and his group. Exactly. Yes. Can I ask you? Yeah. Can I ask you why you're here? For Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. It's ridiculous what the government's doing to him. He's done so much wonderful stuff for the world, and he's being persecuted and prosecuted for for revealing the truth about evil, the evils that uh, all of our governments have really done. I mean, you know, John Howard is free to walk, power walk around Sydney when he's re partially responsible for the death of a million people in Iraq. I mean, there's countless things that, that Julian Assange has revealed. I mean, I just found out that, and I probably knew this a long time ago, but he actually helped Victoria Police to, to stamp out a, uh, a pedophile network here in Victoria. And like, like I, I tried to get a motion up, I'm a nurse, and I tried to get a motion up at my delegates conference, and people are, <laughs> I wanted to put this motion up to, you know, that we make a public statement to stop the extradition of Julian Assange and repatriate him to Australia. And it just, it went down like a lead balloon because people have been so gaslighted by the smear campaign that's been put up against him. He hasn't done a bloody thing wrong. And everything that he's ever published 
is 100% accurate. He's never had to retract anything. And on top of that, um, oh, and then they're trying to level these rape allegations against him, which is just ludicrous. When you read the fine details, it's just, you can see that it's a setup. And, uh, well, it's a, it's a marketing campaign. It, it's been a marketing campaign from the very beginning. And, and you can see that all, I mean, and especially just right after he was arrested, they do the big bust on the ABC and the Murdoch press. I mean, I learned to connect the dots a long time ago. It's kind of interesting, too, uh, that the people who were exposed in those leaks, the things that they were actually responsible for were so incredibly heinous. But he is being drummed out of court because of a, a rape allegation, which is, un, uh, in fact, has been withdrawn. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's it was never a charge. I've heard countless yeah, news. I've yeah. ca- I've heard countless news broadcasts who have who have absolutely lied and said that he's being charged and he's trying to escape these charges. It's been dropped three times. And and this, I'm, it's just it makes me livid. Um, and I mean, and, and there's other arguments. People go on about, oh, yeah, they just dump this stuff out on the public and like, and they don't think about the innocence inside this. Well, like, please, if there was somebody terribly innocent, why has there never been a lawsuit against WikiLeaks? Why has there never been anything like that? People have just abandoned their critical thinking. It's just beyond me, really. Hello, I'm from 3CR. So you've come out here today. Why yes, are you out yes. here today? Well, I'm out here showing the flag, really, for Julian. Yes. D- did you know him? No, I didn't know him personally, but I, I've known of him for many years and been following the unpleasant history of his life. And, uh, yes, yeah, so we're hoping against hope that something good will come of these and that we'll gather more people and uh, somehow somebody's going to step up. And uh, what's your uh, thoughts about the Australian government and uh, the, um, the worth of Australian citizenship in regards to Julian Assange? Well, it seems to me that all our governments, not just the Australian government, are becoming more and more lawless. They're anti- less and less to uh, international law and they just do as they please. So if they want to take away your citizenship or they want to have you jailed, they can seem to me they can do anything they like. As far as Julian is concerned, it's a tragedy. Um, Of course, we all want to see him out and we'd like to see him home, but only if he's protected. I saw on a, a, um, a telegraph pole on the tram when I was coming in uh, the other day a si- little sign with a picture of him hero it said yes. and I thought oh, there's an ember he's a hero he's a hero, he's a good man he's not doing it for profit and that's really important to say he's somebody who's willing to lay his life on the line and he hasn't got his hand out for a penny not too many of us. I mean, the world is governed by money, isn't it? But not for him. And he's so smart, and he could be put to such use to do the sorts of things that... You know, the first thing he ever did was here in Australia, you probably know all this, um, is he, um, he, he, with a, he helped the Victorian police crack a, a, a pedophile ring. 
And uh, yeah, But nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about him. The press is silent on him. All the media, even the ABC and, and SBS, it's like he doesn't exist. And it's, and it's obvious then that it's a, it's a set-up. And because I speak to so many people, either A, who say he's a rapist and they know nothing about him, or they know nothing about him. And these things are serious. So you can see if somebody like you or I got into trouble, yeah. forget help. Yeah. <laughs> One of the signs has this quote from Julian Assange, every time we witness an injustice and do not act, we train our character to be passive in its presence and thereby eventually lose all ability to defend ourselves and those we love. Well, why is it important for us to be outside uh, the State Library steps here today? It's his birthday um, and he's, as someone was pointing out to me, we haven't heard very much about what's happening to him in the prison. Yeah, we haven't heard much of what's happening to him in the prison because he's got very limited contact with the outside world. His uh, father, John, went to see him a couple of weeks ago and he told me that Julian was so sick he could hardly speak properly. He's been kept in um, his own cell for usually 23 hours a day. In Belmarsh Prison, which not me, but no less august an organisation than the BBC, has referred to as Britain's Guantanamo. Um, it's, a, as I say, a cell built for t prison built for terrorists. Um, when, and when he does get visitors, it's um, his legal team. And, of course... They're not going to talk to me or you or many other people about their legal strategy. But all we're getting back is that he's very sick, he's losing a hell of a lot of weight, his eyes are fucked, and, yeah, he's just at a very I mean, bad he's way. only 48, I was surprised to find out. He's actually only 48. That's right, yeah, that's, that's right. He, he's 10 years younger than me, he looks 10 years older. It's, um, it's shocking what they've done to him. And, of course, Nils Meltzer, the... Um, UN rapporteur on um, on torture has said that he's exhibiting all the signs of psychological torture, and um, that has a that has a real effect on a, on a person. He's very sick. This is his birthday. He's 48. As yep. you said, his father was good to see him, and he can barely speak. Uh, he's in a, a British prison, which is like their version of Guantanamo Bay. And uh, there's every likelihood that the Australian government is, has washed its hands of him and that uh, the Americans may snaffle him up. But he's not the only whistleblower that's under attack, you're saying. He's not the only... Whistleblower that's under attack at the moment. No, he's not. As I say, um, it's, we've got a few who are dead. But also you've got Witness K and Bernard Collery um, talking about the way ASIS bugged the East Timorese cabinet rooms. We've got, um, who else have we got? David McBride, um, who leaked the Afghan documents to the ABC's been in court. Um, we've got the ABC under attack and having their officers raided. Um, it's not just whistleblowers who are under attack, it's the truth that's under attack. And this is about controlling the narrative. And, you know, to get back talking, I really normally shy away from calling things Orwellian, but we have a Ministry of Truth at the moment trying to control a narrative which is patently false. And as you said, uh, Julian Assange is one man and uh, what we could do, in fact, is not just raise awareness about him but also push back 
we need to push back and that's what Julian himself has asked us to do push back resist resist the lies resist the governments resist the war WikiLeaks was born out of it is very much central to the peace movement and we need to push against the lies that are going to send young men and women off to war and are going to see brown people, let's face it, let's not mince words, killed by the thousands, massacred like they did in Iraq, like they're doing in Yemen, um, like they did in Vietnam, like they always do. War between the West and China that has been played out in things like Huey. Um, and there's going to be a big digital divide and that's coming, that's the next Cold War. But um, I was talking to Clinton Fernandez about that just this morning in fact. But um, the other thing is China is building its Belt Road Initiative at the moment. And the Western world is about controlling world trade. So we're looking at the trade routes China is needing. And if you look um, west of China, they need to go through Iran. There's a very small space, 763 kilometres, between the south of the Caspian Sea and the north of the Persian Gulf, that China need to get through to have a direct access to the Middle East, for whatever reason. I'm not saying they're angels, they might have their own nefarious reasons. But that's one of the reasons we're in Iran, to stop, to block the trade routes of China. The same reason we're building a base in Manus Island, um, on the approach to where they need to come to enter the Ombai Wetar Strait. The same reason we're talking about Darwin, which is where we need to stop people going up the Lombok Strait. Um, it's all about trade routes. And what, who's going to benefit from this? The people who are going to benefit are the Western governments, who first and foremost, as soon as there's a terrorist attack or any action anywhere, start implementing more and more and more repressive laws. And the other people are the biggest companies in the world, the arms companies. And the people who invest in arms companies, your superannuation companies invest in arms companies. If you've got super and a major Australian industry fund, chances are you're invested in an arms company. Every time there is a terrorist attack, every time there is a war, I urge people to go to Bloomberg's website, look up Lockheed, BAE Systems, Raytheon, the biggest arms companies in the world, and you can pin to the moment, to the second, the news broke about a terrorist attack or a war outbreak somewhere, the rise in their share price. It is a wonderful thing for them. Capitalism is now at a point where it is based on a war economy. And so war is good for capitalism. And getting rid of whistleblowers is good for business. Of course it is. Getting rid of whistleblowers. People who are saying, no, we don't need to go to war. This is a lie. This isn't happening. That is the same as people who are saying McDonald's is unhealthy food. All right. What we're doing is, and capitalism, and Australia in particular, places a really high price on people costing the corporations money, costing the government money. You know, as an example of this, just as an example of this, and a friend of mine recently had some illegal tobacco. Do you know the, the fine for having illegal tobacco? It's a pretty heavy um, it's prison about, sentence. It's about 30 times as much as having illegal pot. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a crime against the tax department. It's a crime against capital. It's nothing to do with health. No. All right? No, no, I know that. Yeah, so in every, every aspect of our society, the biggest crimes 
are the people who are blowing the whistle and who are attacking corporate profits. And what whistleblowers do, what Julian Assange and, Whis and WikiLeaks did, is attacked corporate profits by saying this war was not necessary. This war was built on an edifice of lies. If people accepted that and refused to go to war, the biggest companies in the world would lose money. Yeah, but that, what they'd say is, as you said, it's built on a war economy. All these people like what's going up on in Queensland with the digging of the the uh, de desecration of the, the land, effectively, yeah, yeah. is they're all saying it's worth it because there's jobs in it. Um, all these people are now uh, their best uh, advocates because they see themselves as putting food on their table. Yeah, that's true. They see that, but again, that's they see that because they've believed the lies. The, the, um, the Extinction Rebellion people and the um, no fracking people and the anti-coal seam gas people have been publishing the documents that Adani has produced that say from the horse's mouth, as it were, that no they job. are going to be fully automated mines. Yeah, no, no jobs. They are, yeah, they, well, there will be some jobs, yeah. but they'll be from computer technicians from India and Sydney and Melbourne. That's right. Not for labourers from central Queensland. Oh, that's exactly right. Yeah, so, so it's just, again, the lies. And again, if you go to wikileaks.org and you do a search on Adani, you will see all the lies Adani have told over the years, going back, I think, 1976 is the first cable about them in the, during the Carter administration, where they're creating bullshit about the need for water-cooled reactors in Iran, all right, um, under, the Shah, under the Shah of Iran back in those days, who was very, very pro-American, as you'll, as you'll remember. Um, sorry to people who are younger than Annie and I. Um, but this has been going on for a long time. What Adani and the Western governments are doing in Queensland is nothing they haven't done all over the world before they got here. The only other thing I'd like to add is what I've already said, resist. Don't believe what I'm saying to you here. I'm asking you not to believe me. Act like you're settling and just assume that I'm lying about everything. Go do your own research, not only on WikiLeaks, do all kinds of, all kinds of research on the web and um, find out the truth of what's happening. And do it with your eyes and your heart open and the truth will set you free. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads, time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Hey you, you who are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. Yeah, we do. We haven't reached our target yet, Mar Marcus. 
Yeah, so listeners, if you're out there and you haven't uh, donated or you haven't yeah paid your pledge, uh, yeah, get on the phone nine four one nine eight three double seven. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily today, yeah. but during office hours. Uh, you can also go online, of course, three uh, cr dot org dot au forward slash donate. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and uh, you've been uh, browsing uh, the unseemly Australian for the next little tidbit. What is it? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's regarding uh, Sally McManus and her response in uh, calls from uh, various unions for her to stand aside over her handling of the uh, the John Setka matter as the secretary of the ACTU. As the secretary of the ACTU, and perhaps a bit of a tinge of uh, the failed uh, um, the uh, rules are broken campaign, maybe. Uh, yeah, oh, no doubt as as that uh, too. I suppose yeah. If the coach of a football team keeps losing, they, they, usually, <laughs> they usually stand aside yeah, people or get sacked. Um, yeah, well, that was a massive, uh, big failure. Millions and millions of dollars of uh, members' uh, funds down the drain in that campaign. But I th- think what she said is, is baffling in her response. She said, a, a lot of people don't understand how unions operate. They're democratic organisations. If someone is elected, you're elected by the members. And so it's up to the members to decide who their leaders are, and this is what we've been saying all along. This is what the CFMEU, the officials and members have been saying along. This is what John Setka said, that he's elected by the members, he has the full support of the members, and while he's elected by the members and has their support, he'll remain in the job. Yeah, Yet bizarre, Sally McManus it? comes out and, and says this, and then she says, and that's a really, really important thing to defend, to always defend that, because workers should decide how their unions are run, and this is what the CFMEU members have been defending for a long time now. So, I mean, and it is related to the uh, uh, integrity bills that uh, the uh, LNP, the Liberal National Party government, is trying once again to try to get through Parliament that is squarely uh, aimed at uh, union leaderships. Yeah, very fascinating, isn't it? It's a bit, as you said, it is a bit of a quandary. <laughs> Uh, we'll uh, go to a track and then we'll return with a chat with uh, someone from Queensland. Why do sailors sail the sea? Why does one and two make three? Why does F come after E? Like you because I do. Why are apples coloured green? Why is tin so sparkling? Why is snow what winters bring? Like you because I do. How many stars in the street?
And this morning on Solidarity Breakfast, we're joined on the line by uh, Steve Smythe, who is the District President of the Mining and Energy Division of the CFMEU in Queensland. Uh, welcome to the program, Steve. Good morning. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, so on June the 26th, just last week, uh, one of your members was involved in a uh, fatal incident. Yet another worker that went to work and uh, never returned home. It certainly was, and unfortunately that's the third death in six months in Queensland coal mining. In the Queensland coal mining industry, sorry. Um, yeah, what, what happened was there was a, a failure of strata or what they call them, the open cut mines. Um, a high wall has come down on top of a excavator and unfortunately um, the operator of that excavator was was killed in, in, in that event. And, you know, it's just a tragic reminder of the hazards that workers face, particularly in, in Queensland. In the last six months, that's three deaths and six months in coal and there's been two in non-coal. Yeah, and yeah, mining workers, particularly in Queensland, as you just said, are overrepresented in the statistics when it comes to uh, workplace accidents and workplace deaths. Yeah, it certainly is, and that's one of the issues. Um, certainly, it's one of the focuses that our union has in Queensland and coal is is on you know um, a number of matters, but particularly in relation to to health and safety. You know, and that's people go to work to work, not to die. You know, we we're focused on on. Why, what are the mechanisms and the phase of these fatalities? But there's a number of contributing factors that, that unfortunately have led to a number of these. Um, and it's really got to do with the makeup of the industry now, who's working in it, and, and, and really, um, to be perfectly blunt, the lack of enforcement by the regulator and the, just the approach by the employer. It's really interesting that uh, we didn't realise that uh, actually the manslaughter laws, industrial manslaughter laws that came out of Queensland, actually don't include the mining industry. No, it doesn't. We're, 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 Bizarre. We're filthy. Yeah, we're filthy about that. That was a deal that was cut, and I'll be honest, prior to the last state election. And, um, you know, it hasn't been for the lack of of focus, by the, particularly in the mining industry, by the CFMU Mining Energy Division. Um, we've pushed and pushed and pushed and... Yeah, it was really a r- bizarre that they come out and they introduced it into general workplace health and safety but left the mining out. But at this stage, we're very, very close to the industrial manslaughter been introduced. Uh, a lot of work's gone on in that space. Um, it's well overdue and we really believe it, it, it'll act as a deterrent or at least put bosses on notice and, and those that don't want to do the right thing by workers um, that there is some, there is a, a big stick there for a better word for those bosses that don't want to do the right thing. Well, that's a, that's a, a travesty that the government and even the employers can uh, think that a, the life of a mining worker is w- uh, worth less than the life of any other uh, citizen in this country. Oh, it's crazy. It's bizarre. Yeah. And particularly in mining, as I said, we've had uh, three deaths in six months. We've had uh, one of our underground coal mines um, have a major fire and yeah, it was, it was in the point of nearly um, a mine explosion. We've had serious accidents. We've had a lot of high potential incidents, as they call it, and, and we're still fighting and scraping with the state Labor government to get industrial manslaughter in. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I just find it totally unacceptable. And, you know, I mean, we... As, as we do as a union, we've been pushing and pushing and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but to have it introduced into general workplace health and safety and leave out one of the most hazardous industries mining um, was just bizarre. Now, of course, we're, we're in Victoria a long way away from where you are and uh, after the election, uh, federal election, we got this impression that, uh, and this confirms, that the uh, mining industry has an enormous uh, amount of power. Can you talk to that? Oh, certainly has. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about some of the largest multinationals on the planet. You're talking about companies like BHP, um, Anglo American, Glencore, Peabody, uh, Rio Tinto were there for a while, but they've gone. Um, 
they just wield a, a lot of authority and power, and obviously a lot of money. I mean, they are used to doing business in countries like Latin America and South America, where they really, uh, sorry, uh, South Africa, where they really just get away with whatever the laws allow them. So um, they you almost say murder. Yeah, you do. In some countries, there is. Yeah, I mean, and, and you see it. Um, you know, they get away with it. And here, they they do what they've got to do, governed by the laws and by the unions. And um, it's clear that that, that these multinationals, um, all about them, they're just driven by production over safety, um, and they're driven by at any cost to get and do whatever they've got to do to to make that buck for their shareholders. And um, certainly, um, you know, it. it the last federal election really showed that, um, how much power mining companies have got, you know, and other multinationals. And uh, all safety incidents and deaths are totally preventable. They should never happen, but it seems nothing will change unless bosses have that uh, fear and threat hanging over their head that they'll uh, spend time in jail if they if a worker does get killed under their watch. Certainly, that's certainly correct, mate. And, and look, just a quick snapshot. There's about 38,000 coal miners in Queensland that work directly in the mines. We have about in excess of 60 plus coal mines, open cut and underground. Um, about 85% of our coal plus is exported globally, particularly a lot of metallurgical coal for, for um, steelmaking. But we're the real issue. So so we have a pretty vast industry and it's pretty large um, across Queensland, but a lot of our issues come down to the type of employment practices as well, um, which are, you know, have a lot of labour employment, lack of supervision, lack of experience. So they're all factors as well, but unless we get some, some stronger regulation and some deterrent around these industrial manslaughter laws, for example, um, and, and it's warranted well overdue, then, then things will not change um, because there's certainly not going to be a change in the employment practices that these employers put in place. Do you have uh, problems with uh, right of entry, that type of thing? No, we don't actually because in Queensland, specific in, particularly in coal mining, um, we have three elected what they call district union inspectors or industry safety and health representatives who um, have powers and functions similar to the regulator who can go in unannounced and do inspections at coal mines. So but their role is predominantly and only health and safety. Mm. Uh, so they can go in and they can inspect mines. Um, they, they do an enormous um, job. They, they uh, have the ability to stop the mine. That, so they have a lot of powers. Um, go back to the right of entry, which we do through the industrial mechanisms. We don't have a lot of issues. The problem with coal mines is they're like Fort Knox. To get into a coal mine, the security is just... Um, so 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 strong. Um, you actually couldn't ever. You, you, you can't get to a mine and go into the mine without having to go through security gates, security guards. So right of entries are never an issue. Um, you obviously got to give notice, which is unfortunate, but that's the way it works. But when it comes to health and safety, we have the, the appropriate people who can go in without any of the obstacles in the way and carry out their roles. So what you, what you're saying is that there's sort of practical limitations. So uh, as someone was describing it to me the other day, that you go through a security gate and then you could be driving for miles before you yes, get... Right. Yeah, and then you have to go through another security gate. That, that can happen, that's right. And then if you go to an underground coal mine, um, really, um, because of the strict procedures, health and safety, you actually go to the top of the mine, you get inducted, you get your what they call Captain Anthony self-rescuer, then they take you into the mine to the appropriate crib rooms underground. So there's less... Um, um, there's there's less no surprise. There's yeah. no surprise attack. <laughs> no, no, because you actually... The only way you can get there, because you've got to do inductions, you've got to put on... Um, you've got to go through an induction process, the shaved escapeways in the mine, you've got to put on self-rescuers, cave, you know, all this sort of stuff. So 
really, you, you, it's not as if you can go there and, and, and do this and that because you've actually got to go through that process to be able to get into the mine. But um, it's a worthwhile exercise. We do a lot of right of entries um, for industrial purposes as well as talk to workers, um, but also the health and safety guys do a tremendous amount of work and job because they can go in there, as I said, they can go in and unannounced and do inspections. They can pull the show up. Um, they can follow up complaints from workers. So they do it from, you know, and they're flat out, unfortunately, with all these fatalities and serious incidents and accidents because they've got to investigate them and, and, and follow through its reports. So, you know, that's a, a lot of work for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, these particular fatalities, the most recent fatalities, uh, were they, um, has it turned out to be about systems or is it something structural? I think um, what I know at this stage is a number of factors, is particularly the systems failures. Um, I think um, also some of the, the, contrib- the factors that we see is, is again, I'll come back to the lack of supervision or quality supervision of people supervising people in work areas. You know, you're talking about a, a guy that's operating an excavator in a pit yeah. with like 30 to 40 metres of high wall above him. Uh. Um, that wall failed. Yeah. Um, it's come down on top of the excavator. The problem, I say, and at this stage, is that um, it's why people are allowed to work in those conditions or in those positions. You know, apparently was he alone? Work. Was he alone? Uh, he was working an excavator in a pit. Yeah, that's correct. There was people in and around oh, the God. area. But um, one of the issues we'll come back to certainly is, is the failure of the strata. You know, and the questions that we're asking is if, this, if they knew the strata was unstable, and I've still got to get to the bottom of that, then why had people in there? You know, where was the inspection regime? the technical people to ensure that the area was safe. Um, so that's that's really the directly what's happened, why why and how did it happen. But then we've also got the issues with the, what we call the emergency response because in Queensland, all coal mines are supposed to have an emergency response capability at the mine. But what we see a lot in central Queensland because of the vast area is the reliance on the local um, ambulance oh my um, goodness. fire brigade, which are all made up of volunteers of our members anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Community. So... So, and, and they're not the only mine. I mean, you've got these multi-million dollar mines run and owned by Peabody, BHP, Anglo, and they still have a heavy reliance on the local community, yet they want to put next to nothing into these communities to help them out, in my view. So yeah. um, there's certainly going to be factors about the emergency response capability, um, and then, then it flows on. But, yeah, you know, and I'm getting a lot of feedback from that mine side from our members who, who have no confidence in the management running that mine. Mm-hmm. Um, they had no confidence in the way it had been run. Um, and what's sad is after the event, a lot of people coming out and saying how bad the mine was being run, people that left that mine to go elsewhere, people that were in labour-high positions that really felt like they couldn't speak out. So there's certainly going to be a lot come out of this fatality. Um, but again, it's up to the industry. You know, and we can't rely on industry or the bosses to do the right thing. So it's going to have to be driven through the union's involvement, the workers' involvement, and and getting the regulator or the government off their butt to do the right thing. And after the deaths, uh, Steve, uh, mining companies continued on as usual. There was no, no briefings with the workers over this uh, latest tragic death? or That's correct. So, so a number of mines in that vicinity, they spoke to the workers about what happened, but the majority of the mines just went back to work like nothing's happened. You know, and and I, what really sickens me is I get sick to death of hearing these companies say after an event, oh, safety is number one priority. Well, if it was the number one priority, workers wouldn't die. Yeah, they wouldn't exactly. get injured and they wouldn't continue to get maimed, and that's yeah. our issue. And um, you know, it's this is this is sort of the mindset of them. It's business as usual. You know, it's just totally unacceptable that a person, as we know, goes to work, doesn't return home, 
yet it's production as normal in some of these other mines. This 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 current mine still shut down at this stage. Obviously, it's under investigation. Um, but obviously, the regulator is ensuring that now, guys, are out doing an investigation as well. But it's just been absolutely atrocious. Um, and it sort of seems to be the behaviour of a lot of these employees now, just to um, treat it like a simple business business transaction. You know, and the only ones that are, that are really ever, ever are concerned are the workers, and obviously the family and friends of the deceased. Yes. And those workers. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's atrocious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on and yeah, it is. It's it's actually words are cheap, you know. Uh, when yeah. when in actual fact, uh, uh, no deaths should happen, and uh, these aren't accidents. Uh, no. Um, also, uh, do, do you have anything to do with uh, the rise in black lung in uh, uh, the coal industry up in Queensland? Yeah, yeah. So really, it was our organisation, the CFMU, particularly the mining energy division, um, and a number of ourselves who. First, um, become aware. I suppose of, they call it the re-emergence. I call it the cover-up. Yeah, yeah. So of, do I, actually. Of pneumoconiosis, um, and it all come about from uh, one of our members who was diagnosed with it, um, and through our relationship with uh, the Union in the United States, called the United Mines of America, and a number of their leading health specialists and doctors who they use, um, we got in contact and we exchanged. Um, some x-rays and we had that sort of general discussion there. I cut a long story short, that was in about July 2015. Um, we then started realising it was more than one case. Yeah. Um, there's two case, three case. Um, and then we got their involvement. We then put pressure on the government to get these US experts in. And then four years on down the track at the moment, we, we, we're sitting at about 105 confirmed cases of pneumoconiosis or silicosis or or um, um, emphysema or mine dust lung disease, they call them. Now, that's 105 confirmed cases. There's at least another three, four, five hundred cases waiting confirmation. And is it, uh, true, is it true that the companies were doing the lung x-rays and then just turfing them and not giving yes. the people the proper results? That's correct. So we've got yeah. some evidence now where the employers, because the problem with our legislation was the employers have what they call a nominated medical advisor, which um, we obviously have fundamental issues with because it's by putting the fox in charge of the hen house having the company doctor. So these x-rays would be done, but these x-rays then were supposed to be reviewed by the health surveillance unit, which is Queensland Government, the regulator. Um, all these medical assessments were just being put in shipping containers at one of their locations. Um, so there's thousands of coal miners and thousands of workers who unfortunately have probably passed on who have become sick of the disease um, prior to the... July 2015, and we'll never know. Um, it's atrocious. It's, it's actually... Cr- talk about criminal. It's criminal. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've had inquiries into it. We've had all that. I don't think the inquiries went hard enough. I think there was people that, including health professionals, doctors, there's company people, and there's probably people within the regulator, not the ones that are there now, but others, who should have been held to account because to have workers die from this hitters, this terrible disease, um, and you only get coal mine workers in the one way, exposure to coal dust. And, and have them fight all the way, and these people have to fight for compensation. It's disgraceful. And there really should be an investigation into these company doctors because, of course, if these doctors are getting paid by the company, they're just going to uh, sing to the company's uh, tune. I mean, they certainly is. Well, they did, anyway. They did. They did. They did. And that, we've actually were successful in March this year getting legislation in now where company, where doctors is like a health compliance piece of legislation, the coal mining legislation where doctors can be investigated, right? It's taken that long, but it's through the union's involvement to get to this point. We welcome it. Um, they've rolled it out 
that's where people can go. They can now go and investigate the doctor's actions, company doctors. But the problem is, is all the damage has been done, as you know, from from this type of the disease and the exposure to dust over time. Um, we can fix it going forward, but certainly the um, tragedy of the past um, is going to haunt us for a long time to come because I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately, with the people being diagnosed with this disease. Well, you can certainly see that uh, the CFMMU in Queensland has a lot on its plate. Yeah, yeah, we do have. Um, we're up for the fight, as, as, as with any organisation. Um, and, and I think... Um, We've got a certain strategy in place, obviously, around health and safety-related matters because we say uh, safety is union business. Um, we've got a lot going on in the space of directly the health and safety of these fatalities, industrial manslaughter, and also with the, what we call the pneumoconiosis-related issues slash silicosis issues. Um, we're focused on um, getting there, obviously, because we owe it to our members and their families um, to get it right. But um, also, it's time for all workers, who are not even members of ours, to stand up. Um, and, and stop accepting, um, as I'd say, the, the substandard conditions that, that, that they accept um, in the workplace. Well, yeah, the union movement's been around a lot longer than any government, any any company, and uh, the union movement will continue to fight for its members. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning on Solidarity Breakfast, uh, Steve. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. Have a good day. See ya. An urgent call-out to our listeners and supporters. Drew and Steve from the CFMEU Victaz have been personally fined by the ABCC a total of almost $20,000 for going onto a site to check up on safety standards. The ABCC has also ruled that the CFMEU can't pay the fine for them. If Drew and Steve can't pay by July the 19th, they'll be in contempt of court and will face jail time. To donate, go to unfairfines.raiselly.com. That's unfairfines.raiselly.com. 3CR is proudly Union Radio. This is Irie Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. There is a Planet B. Come along to a sparkling night of progressive comedy at Greenleft Weekly's annual comedy debate. Join Masters of Ceremonies, Rod Quantock, with Sean Bedlam, Duff, Fiona Scott Norman, Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, and Tom Tanuki. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged, and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Friday the 26th of July, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Don't panic, there is a Planet B, a fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential, phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com/bdhtx. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when, yippee, great news, the tax cuts for the filthy rich bill is now an act, is now law. Much excitement as this critical need for the economy will reward the aspirational in our society. 
uh, who are they? We asked big economic supremo Josh Friedem Icebergs. Well, there's us who aspire to make the filthy rich filthy richer, and there's the filthy rich who aspire to becoming filthier richer. Summed up beautifully by the voice of the filthy rich, the true blue Aussie capitalist review yesterday screaming P1, Senate delivers tax cut triumph. Couldn't have put it better myself. Achieved as crossbenchers did deals to get totally unrelated matters attached to the slash taxes for the filthy rich bill and scuttle them and economic giant Matthias Rotten Tudor demanded the socialists respect their mandate and the socialists yet again displayed the courage of their non-convictions which has dominated their post-election behaviour with all the experts who know about these things and know just how critical for the economy are tax cuts for the filthy rich declaring the socialists would lose credibility in the community if they did not support the cuts. And true to form, the socialists figured they could shore up their working class credentials by agreeing the filthy rich desperately need a tax cut. On which the Grattan Institute, hardly an evil commie hotbed, claimed the tax cuts would mean the filthy rich would be paying less in taxes a percentage than they now do. Gee, surprise. And the tax system would be the least progressive it has been since the 1950s. Good. The Parliament almost unanimously agreed that proves it will work. Speaking of work, the government and presumably the practitioners who comprehend the delicate flower that is the economy have now moved on to telling the people the socialists will lose credibility again if they do not support the smash the union's integrity bill allowing evil unions to be deregistered and evil union bosses to be sacked part of business class relations minister Christian Beltham's conservative approach to business class relations. And of course it is conservative. It's an arch-conservative approach and thank goodness the evil unions and workers know the socialists will hold firm as they have on everything since the election. Christian's big supremo, Scuttle them more less, son, says caring business class relations reform is critical to getting the economy back on its feet. Having told us during the election, the economy was on its feet and don't stop it up by voting for the other mob, but let's ignore that and, and um, rebut silly suggestions that he does not have a mandate to bring in a few sensible, necessary controls on the out-of-control evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers by pointing out the defeated socialists plan to give the evil unions even more out-of-control powers which the people rejected, thereby giving him a mandate to do what he likes, sort of reverse mandate, and controlling evil unions is what scuttled them and Christian like very much. Christian is not only the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, he is also the Attorney General, and switching to that hat, he continued his relentless struggle to make Trublu Aussie a better place by commenting on the Uluru Statement, seeking constitutional recognition, treaty, an Indigenous advisory body, a voice in Parliament, and generally recognising we invaders haven't treated the people who own this country all that well. Well... Christian was forced to admit with logic right up there with Scuttle Them's reverse mandate argument that a response by the caring business class team to the Uluru statement was miles away. 
because the wording of the statement was not in legislative legalese. Bloody ignorant indigenous people. And apparently it will take years, miles away, for the government's legislative draft lot to get the wording right. Fair enough, because we've noticed when the government wants to rush a bill through, how long it takes for the same draft lot to word it up. Not that we would have any doubts about Christians' intentions or non-intentions. And a momentous week when we were privileged to see the greatest and most heroic moment in human history as U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor, modestly proclaimed the fact that he had taken a step across the evil but sometimes good North Korean border and shaken hands time and again for the cameras with the bloke with the funny haircut. Not sure Donald put it in, act, in an actual sentence. Well, yes, we can be sure he didn't. The only sentence he knows is sentencing evil, evil Iran to economic strangulation. But Donald said in his own way this was the greatest and most heroic moment in human history. And given we can't be absolutely sure the dear baby Jesus ever existed, he may be right. And what next, Donald? We'll see, we'll see. Greatest moment ever. Although almost immediately that morning's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin may have already outscooped Donald in the greatest moments, or more correctly, momentous events shaping the history of the human race, as it revealed as, as its P3 big, big story with big, big pickies to prove it that two women were almost identical dresses to television's big night, the loonies. Imagine their embarrassment, their anger at the haute couture designer who allowed this to happen. Donald bleed. Although Donald displayed how he wants other people to bleed, if there's anything left of them to bleed, with the U.S. OBS train killer might marauding the streets of Washington to boast the U.S. OBS commitment to the merchants of death. Independence Day, best ever, biggest ever, greatest train killer machine ever. Our country is the strongest it has ever been, ever, ever. He's such a modest man, and Donald said other countries in the U.S. of the world were allowed to celebrate their independence as long as it was not independent of the U.S. of. And poor Donald deplored the fact that there were some evil countries in the U.S. of world who had a different and obviously false definition of independence, and hence the train killer trillions of dollars machine marauding his streets was a timely warning to fall into line, to use a train killer term. Definitely falling into line, but bit of a furor over former Minister for Offence, Train Killing and Slaughter here, Christopher Payne in his appointment as an offensive train killer slaughter advisor to one of the world's big four accounting for everything firms. Some spoil sports claiming he is breaking the ex-minister's code, but Christopher has put them in their place. I know my responsibilities under the code and I will abide by them. Perhaps someone should point out to Christopher that his prime responsibility under the code was not to accept the job in the first place. Although given how these lots don't appreciate a bit of adverse publicity, bit of potential bad news for pain in there, because the EY Not Big Brass met at the weekend to discuss the controversy, including maybe withdrawing the offer. See, they appreciate the code. 
as does the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Overseeing Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, whose eligibility to be in Parliament has been questioned because of an interest in a childcare centre which receives government handouts. Good news. Peter's resolved the problem by renouncing his interest in the family trust at the heart of the issue. Interesting that, because the eligibility question relates to whether or not you were eligible when you nominated for the seat. So the government seems to be forgetting that little bit of the legislation, but then it's got more important things on its hands than whether a minister like Pete is eligible or not. And he's resigned to his fate, so to speak. Back to Christopher's important new but maybe thwarted role advising EY not on making a financial killing out of killing, out of the merchants of death, always good to get a balanced, unbiased view on the business of train killing and slaughter from our favourite commentator on train killing and slaughter, Jim Morlam, former big train killer and Iraq invader turned senator, although that's just ended, unless he gets Arthur Sinner since of Dunnus's vacancy. Jim just loves a bit of war, and this week wisely informed us Trubler was he, quote, has an obligation and the capability to join the US of in an invasion of evil Iran. And Jim's advice on these things is always invaluable. We should have a competition to see if there's any train killer scenario in which Jim would suggest we should not go and kill the other. Asterisk, as long as it's us invading them. Still in Canberra, there's this block of land close to Parliament House, the centre of parliamentary democracy, which has been left vacant under local law because it's home to the endangered golden sun moth. Good news for the economy. This week, the government flogged it to a couple of developers who planned 40,000 square metres of office space, although they may also include a hotel. And the developer said... We are excited to deliver a quality project in one of Canberra's most important precincts. Precincts. What an exciting boon to the economy. Oh, and the golden sun moth? Selfish little thing standing against progress, standing or more particularly flying between a developer and a bag of money? Well, all's well. The government got environmental approval to offset the loss of the habitat to government-owned land on the outskirts of the city. So presumably, they'll put signs up between the construction equipment with an arrow saying, Golden Sun Moth, this way. Hope the moths learn to read quickly because they only live for a few days. And finally, on our dedication to being to uh, living with other species, see Japan, according to the report I read, has resumed commercial whaling after 31 years. And we suppose that's technically correct, although nothing's changed. It's just been called scientific research for the past 31 years. Good morning.
on 8.55am. You certainly are. And you're back with Solidarity Breakfast, Annie and Marcus. And uh, on the line, we've got Humphrey. G'day, Humphrey. How are you? I'm very well. And yourselves? Oh, we're pretty good. Good, thanks, Humphrey. G'day, Marcus. G'day, Humphrey. Been a while. It has indeed. Good to hear you. Um, I suppose you've I suppose you've just come in for the football this morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we've had been having we've been up for ages. We've um, been um, talking to uh, a CFMEU guy from uh, Queensland about the uh, latest um, fatalities and also oh, the yeah. fact that uh, when they did their much lauded. Uh, uh, industrial manslaughter laws out of Queensland, they, uh, surprise, surprise, excluded the mining industry. Did you know that? No, well, no it wouldn't surprise me, though. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I'm actually off to, to Brisbane again. I'll catch up with some of this on Tuesday for a few days. Going up to spread, as the Wobblies used to say, a bit of divine discontent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, part, now that you've... Uh, uh, segued into uh, the yeah. religious flavour. <laughs> no, very clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's launch into your reflections on the Israel Falau debacle. Yeah, well, I mean, we, and one of the things I really want to say was that it's important, I think, for the left not to just trail along behind whatever the capitalist press is dealing with. Yeah. She was raising that. And I want to, here, here. As, as we go through this, I want to raise you know, questions, you know, questions about class. But the first thing that, you know, we, where we have to go back to is that poor old Israel and all these people, they're all the victims of this Christian colonialisation. You know, there they were out on the islands of Tonga in the Pacific having a lovely time. That's right. You know, and then what happens? The bloody Christian missionaries turn up. Um, and Methodists, and, that was the well, brand. Well, I mean, yeah, well, there are things worse than Methodists, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, of all the things, you know, I hadn't realised, I was reminded recently that Tonga is the only country in the world in which I believe in Methodism is the state religion. Yeah, bizarre. You know, I mean, there's not many state religions left, but, you know, anyway, that, that's what they've got stuck with. So there they were. They had their own little superstitions and, you know, you know, whatever they whatever they got up to. And then, then all of this comes along uh, a couple of hundred years ago. And you think, oh, God, poor things. <laughs> but until then, and this is, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert on what went on in Tonga 200 years ago, but I looked up some of the academic work and if you go on the basis of the journals and such things that were put out by the explorers and the castaways and people, as far as getting into drunkenness was concerned, this is before the Wowsers took charge, well, like a lot of people in the Pacific, they were out there and they would have their share of carver for breakfast. And then if they wanted some more carver, you know, they'd have it at any time of the day. Whether they had drunkenness in quite the way in which, you know, we've had in this society with the big corporations pushing alcohol on people, um, I'm not too sure. But this notion that, oh, if you're drunk, you'll go to hell too, well, you know, perhaps that was going on even before the Methodists turned up. And as for fornication, um, well, it seems that it was okay for girls once you got to puberty. There was no sort of bar generally on whether you could have sex or not, except if you belong to the upper caste. Uh, and there, 
what the academics tell us from all the early reports is that that was because the chieftains didn't want their brides to be carrying the sperm of some ordinary person. So there was a bit of a class distinction as to as to what um, as to how free you could be if you're in the upper caste. Um, but apart from that, uh, it all seemed pretty free and easy. It seemed that you know if you if you set up a, a relationship and you didn't like it, you just said, "Well, it's over," and you went on to somebody else. And the other thing about them was, of course, the women went around bare-breasted. Um, which is quite a common thing, of course, you know. Um, there. But what was considered to be very impolite was not to wear a broad band around under your breasts. <laughs> so these were the kind of standard you know, behaviours and attitudes in Tonga before our terrible friends, the Methodists, turned up. Um, so, so they didn't have any idea around... Uh uh, well, you know, being an island and probably uh, similar to some of the things I've read about other islands, they didn't have things like jails or any of those types of things well, either. Well, apparently not. No, I mean, you know, I mean, it wasn't necessarily the most perfect society in the world, of course. I'm not saying, you know, that this was paradise out there and everybody was perfectly happy. Um, but the kinds of things that that he and his people have been had their heads filled with as a result of the arrival of the Wesleyans and people, um, these were, you know, they certainly didn't have any idea of that in their traditional cultures. And I think we've got to begin by pointing out that he and all these other players, and you've got to remember, I said a number of the other players have been saying on the quiet, well, we all believe the same thing. There wouldn't be a football team if nobody who believed these things about who was going to go to hell, because they've all been converted to this. So, so that's the first thing to yeah. You know, we've got to get clear about um, these these questions of. Um, if we just go back to the uh, to drunkenness and uh, when Israel Falao, of course, played AFL and AFL, and the clubs are heavily uh, heavily funded by alcohol companies. Well, so I mean, Israel Falao, he's benefited off uh, off drunkenness. Well, indeed, 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 and you'd have to say. I did cross my mind that one of the reasons why they want to throw him out is that if if the fornicators and the drunks and the liars <laughs> are going to go to hell, who's going to be left out of the football organisers? <laughs> uh, you know, not too many of the, of the of the top brass in any of the football leagues who wouldn't I'd be lined up for a very fiery uh, future. Uh, so indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, but... You know, the, the other thing, of course, to say about it, it isn't only the islanders who have got this. Really, if you scratch any any of the mainstream religions and all of the stray ones as well, they really all believe the same thing. He's come out and said it. But if, you know, whether it's the Catholics or Islam or, you know, I mean, I'm not too sure about the Jews. I, someone told me that the Jews don't actually believe in hell. I don't quite understand that. But anyway. Oh, and actually, I thought the Catholics uh, relinquished hell. They, they decided it wasn't... At first, they got rid of purgatory, and then they decided hell as a concept didn't exist either, but uncertain. Oh, did they? Yeah, oh, well, uncertain well, because I'm not a practising Catholic. No, no. Well, I knew that abolished purgatory. Yeah, yeah, no, they they went on and no said that uh, hell as a concept was uh, not de rigueur, so there uh, you go. Well, 
where now. <laughs> no, I don't well, know. I don't know either. where we are going. We're just going to end up as little particles. Of yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Around. But that's, that's another issue, isn't it? But that's another problem. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in actual fact, uh, the the deeply offensive uh, thing, of course, is uh, the uh, views about homosexuality. But in, in well, I don't know what's what's offensive about that. Why is that more offensive than anything else? Oh well, that's true. Oh, it's, except that you know, drunk, being drunk is a personal choice. Well, being homosexual is really just in someone's makeup, right? No, 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 it isn't. That's just bullshit. That's just that's just genetic determinism. Oh, I see. That's, you know, that's all crap. You know, um, I mean, who knows? I mean, well, I mean, well, one of the things we know about, well, one of the things we'd say about the early reports is none of them mention same-sex activity. Now, it could be... That you mean on the islands? You know, they're just, you know, and it, maybe there wasn't any. Um, but Highly it, unlikely. But, it, but it's a kind of social construction. You know, it's something you, you know, that, that it, you know, so that, and it may be, of course, at the time, because it was a criminal offence in the Royal Navy, <laughs> I'm sure they were very careful about making sure that that stuck. Well, that they weren't going to mention it for that yeah, reason. That's I mean, right. maybe for that reason. <laughs> um, but you know, this whole you know this this terrible excuse. You think, oh, you know, I mean, I don't know that you choose to be any, you know, what you choose to be, and people go through life, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't. Yeah, yeah, um, but know, but the point is, three things at once, and but, a good thing too. But really, the business about Israel Falal is that he's been made a kind of uh, a martyr, uh, around a religious martyr, when in actual fact that wasn't why he was dismissed. Well, indeed, this is the big issue that I think, on a class basis, we've really got to pay attention to. The reason he's been dismissed is because of the conditions of his work. Now, he's in a very special situation. I mean, he gets $5 million. Yeah. And most workers don't do that. But all workers enter into either a written or an unacknowledged work contract. And increasingly, these work contracts include rules about what you can and cannot do and say outside your work. Um, yeah, and the, yeah, well, sometimes at work. I yeah, mean, yeah, and this is really important stuff. I, in fact, I wanted to do a, a, a story on it. I started to collect information. Like I was told by a worker at RMIT that part of their a teacher, that one of their contract items was that they had to smile a certain amount of times. That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, there, was a, there was an attempt <laughs> to make people at Victoria University, the men, they all had to wear suits in case one of the business sponsors came out and saw people wandering around in jeans and casual clothes. You know, it's, you know, the, and were they going to buy the suits for them? Oh, well, it's the corporatisation of, of mentalities and all of that. I mean, a friend of mine's solution to that was <laughs> he put on his doctoral robes and wore them around for a couple of days. Well, that would be that. <laughs> and these are these. No, no, that's not quite what we had in mind at all. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, one of them, of course, the big one, you are talking about the CFMEU before, yeah. not being able to display a Eureka flag. That's right. Well, it's no. a bigger crime for a construction worker to fly a Eureka flag on the crane or wear a sticker on his helmet than what it is for a boss to kill a worker. It's a yeah. more of a penalty to, oh. for a worker to show his loyalty to the union, which is absolute uh, bloody yeah. Yeah, you know, so that in terms of all of the ways in which people's work are controlled by their work contracts, 
I mean, he they wouldn't be able to get him out of the football team or football, you know, playing had he not signed this contract. That's exactly right. I mean, he was really expressing an opinion, however uh, you feel about his opinions. Yeah, yeah. and that, uh, you know, so that, I mean, that's what we've got to get clear. And what we've got to be concerned about is to attack this whole notion of that the employer owns you. Now, that happens, of course, because in reality in a capitalist society, when we sell our labour power, they do own us for those eight hours a day or 12 hours or whatever it is. But it's increasing now with the rise of social media where it's an increasing trend where employees have to sign a contract code of conduct in EBA's clauses that governs and restricts what they can do and say on social media outside of work hours. Yeah, as we've seen here. I mean, there was there was uh, there was a lady here who worked uh, for the uh, for the Australian government, and she got sacked because on her private thing, not using her name, but they followed and found it. She was critic making critical remarks about the government. That's just outrageous. Yeah, and it's been going through the courts, and you know, I mean, you know, they keep arguing back and forth. It's still not finally, finally decided, but. That's what we've really got to be concerned about. You know, I mean, certainly the Falau thing on the $5 million. I mean, you know, the whole idea that Falau could do a GoFundMe campaign when he actually has, a what is it, a $7 million land portfolio is just uh, really gilding the lily. And he's quite (laughs) clearly trying to be made out to be some, you know, fundamentalist Christian kind of martyr. Uh, but uh, really the issue here is actually he, as a worker, uh, expressing opinions which you can ignore effectively because, you know... What we do, as you're saying, is we've got to use it to open up this bigger, wider question that more and more workers are put into this kind of situation as to what it is they are not... uh, that they are not... that they are required to do and that they are not allowed to do, either at work, but more particularly from our point of view, I think, is when they're not at work. Although increasingly, as we know, the difference between when you're at work and when you're not at work, even for paid work, is is getting more and more blurred. But all these demands that are put onto people uh, as to what you are allowed to say, what you know, the kind of views you express... If you bring the corporation <clears throat> into some kind of disrepute, um, and th- that's what's been happening, and that's what we've really got to you know, truly begin to stand up against. It's it's, ti- it's tied uh, directly, I suppose, to the um, Liberal National Party's uh, federal government's desire to actually uh, decide... Uh, put in legislation uh, to decide who can uh, be elected uh, to run um, unions, uh, directing attention away from their own uh, corruption. Yeah, but that's not that's not why the corporations are doing this. The corporations across the world are doing it, and they're doing it in order to screw down on the working class more generally. Um, and that's the big picture that we have to see, that all of these things are not just, oh, there's a political campaign about this, why or the other. It's really a question of what it is that capital now needs at this moment. And if you look at all the reports that have come out in the last eight, um, 
10 years or so is that they really don't know how to get the system up and running again. Um, it hasn't fallen into the big hole, but, you know, every time it comes out, you know, the, whether it's the Reserve Bank here or the Bank of International Settlements and their report that came out on Sunday, they say, we don't know what's happening. We don't know how to fix it from our point of view. But what they do know, and they've always known, is that an important part of keeping it going is screwing down harder and harder on their employees to get more and more surplus value and to make people more fearful so that they worry about losing their jobs or they don't get an extra shift or all of those sorts of things. That's the real context in which all of these things are taking place. So capitalism is drowning? Well, it's, it's certainly, you'd have to say, since the collapse, and there were two or three years there when it was in really drowning, it's certainly been able to do no more than tread water. And it can't go on doing that. The nature of the system is it has to expand. It can't survive on the way in which, you know, it can't in the long term, in its own term, survive um, if, it, if, it, if, if it isn't really expanding at a much faster rate than it has been. Um, and they don't know what to do. Um, they've got zero interest rates. They, you know, we may end up with zero interest rates. It's just, you know, they're trying everything and nothing has worked. And so... Anyway, look, that's taken us a bit away from from this. But on the particular thing of the employment contracts of these footballers, while the likes of Israel Folau might get five million, there are thousands of footballers, young blokes across the Pacific who are recruited to teams here. Some of them, some of them are recruited and taken off to Europe uh, as people who might be able to make the grade, who might become not an Israel Folau, but you know, somebody who is a major player. Um, and they get taken over there, they get promised these things, and it doesn't work out, and they get abandoned. There's a kind of, you know, I mean, we think about it in terms of you know, construction workers going to Dubai or, 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 the, or the super maids from the Philippines, but there's another strand of it with these young blokes who are you know, desperate to make their mark, to become famous footballers, to get a bit of money for the family, they are being dragged into a new kind of blackbirding, as we used to say about taking the Pacific Islanders and putting them to work here on the sugar plantations. So that's another bit of the story that, as far as I've seen, doesn't get any publicity at all. So that for every Israel Folau, there are a thousand of these unfortunates uh, so is, Israel Falau, in fact, uh, he it's not really the devil's party versus the god of mammon. It's really he's uh, scratched the surface on quite a uh, pussy saw that uh, needs to be uh, interrogated. It, it does indeed. I, I mean, I, I mean, you know, the, the devil's party or the god of mammon is all a bit of a, you know... <laughs> sort of rolling joke, really. Um, but, yes, yeah, you know, I mean, we've got to get behind the kind of, oh, 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 the you know, the kind of sort of scandal that has t- taken over, you know, the, the front page of the Herald Scum for another 24 hours or something. Yeah. Um, so these are the kinds of things. And the other thing before we go is that sport itself has been corporatised. 
Yeah, that's and right. That's making money out of working class people. It's making money out, incredible amounts of money out of working class people's culture. Well, you know, all the, all the gaming that's going on around it now, but, you know, the way in which, you know, Kerry Packer changed the rules of cricket so that he could sell the, um, the World Series television rights in a different way so you'd be able to present it so that it was a more gladiatorial sport and you know all of those things and then it's gone on into all the football codes and things and the breaking down of the suburban links so that people felt that their team was related to them you know you'd now find well i mean the fact that you've got all these australian teams with all these pacific islanders in is another indication that there is no link between whatever the name of the team is, the team could be owned, as we know, with um, with English football teams from China or you know anywhere else around the world. They are just other bits of corporate play. And with the gambling companies who uh, sponsor again the AFL, and where it's a bigger crime for a player a player to put a bet on a match than what it is for a player to take drugs. If they take drugs, they're given all the help in the world. Their name's suppressed, but. You put a couple of bucks on your football team and, and you're made to look like a, yeah, the, the biggest criminal. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, while they, you say, I mean, the hypocrisy of this is while they are making, well, millions and billions out of the gaming. I mean, and part of the reason why they jumped out on the players is they've got to make it very clear to the other punters that it isn't being rigged in some way. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, any anything that's got any sports event that's uh, got money attached uh, and uh, people can bet on, uh, you can, uh, you know, it's like going back to John Wren days, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, poor old John Wren was an amateur. Yeah, to that's these right. People, you know? <laughs> he was just running a backyard tote. Yeah, that's and, uh, right. I mean, these people. Yeah, I mean, this is really global, global yeah, yeah. corporation stuff. Well, I mean. Mm-hmm. Collingwood Football Club, I think, was formed off the back of uh, John Wren and his activities. So. Well, yeah, yeah, and you know, and you know, and they were formed off the back of working class mm. blokes wanting to yeah. kick a ball around after work. Yeah, you know, in the 1890s, you know, I mean, there was, I mean, they didn't have any time to you know, to practice. They just turned up and play because they were working 48 hour weeks, you know, six days a week. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying we want to go back to that. But we've got to remember what kind of things these were. These were ways in which um, sport, you know, whether it was, you know, just just having a game of cricket, you know, having a, you know, play around with a tennis ball or something. I mean, these were ways in which people communicated socially and enjoyed themselves. And in rugby, uh, Humphrey, you might know the story of Roy Masters. He instilled in his team, was it the West, Western Magpies? He instilled in them that the, the rest of the competition hated them because they were working class boys who lived in a commission area. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's been you know widespread. The battles between Carlton and Collingwood yeah. carry a lot of that in it. Indeed, I'm told. I'm told. But if we end up with, we yep. must be getting round to. Yeah, all we've come say, to the end. All I can say is that that if the likes of um, Abbotts and, and Abbott and Bernardi and Morrison and Pell, if they're the people who are going to, when they get up to heaven, that the celestial goalkeeper is going to hand them a ninety and a harp, then I want to, with Harry Pollard, I'm happy to drift down to hell. That's, <laughs> that's where I want to be. If, if, if heaven is eternity with them, I'm not going. <laughs> Thanks very much, well, Humphrey. Thank you both. Great to hear Thanks, you. Thanks, Humphrey. 
There we go. And yes, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, we uh, went down to uh, uh, out the front of uh, State Library to the Julian Assange event. Uh, we then went to Queensland and spoke to Steve Smythe about what's going up, ongoing up there in uh, the central Queensland regarding fatalities and uh, that we uh, did a full circle with uh, a chat about God, Israel Folau and uh, Humphrey's opinion about uh, the restrictions of workers and their ability to say things, ownership by corporations. We'll uh, we'll meet again um, Marcus, on Monday, because that's when the CFMEU are going to do their pull-up for uh, Concrete Gang. And just to remind you, before we go out with a song... uh It's not too late to donate It's not too late to donate It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 9419 8377 or check our website 3cr.org.au You could also drop in of course, people would love to say hello to some of the listeners Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and uh, a track to go out See you Marcus Thanks Annie and thanks listeners We'll see you next week Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.